Hey friends, this is Josh Blair, and I'm the pastor of Central Valley Church, and this is our podcast. My prayer is that this message you hear today will encourage you and inspire you to walk closer with Jesus this week. If you want to stay connected with us, you can check out our website at cvcmadera.com, and there you'll find our Instagram and Facebook links, as well as our YouTube channel, Central Valley Church Madera. Thanks for listening. Uh, we're in the fourth week of the book of Acts, and we're in, um, still in chapter 2. And we looked at the first 11 verses last week of, of chapter 2, looking about, at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the upper room, where Jesus, uh, as He ascended to the right hand of the Father after His resurrection from the dead, He told His disciples to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. And we talked about that last week. And in that portion, we talked about how there are, when, when the Holy Spirit fell, they all began to speak in tongues or other languages as the Holy Spirit gave utterance. And last week we broke those four, we broke down tongues into four categories that we see scripturally. And if you weren't here to, uh, to be a part of that, you can go back and, onto our YouTube channel and you can watch that. But I'll just give a quick recap as we continue to dive in here. But we broke them into two categories, the public gifts and private gifts. Public gifts being, uh, the first one being an earthly language that the speaker doesn't know but the hearer does know. That's what we see in Acts chapter two, when they begin to speak in other tongues and those who are outside say, what's going on here? We hear these um, Galileans speaking in our native tongue and they're from different regions around the world. We hear them speaking directly to us. That was a public gift of an earthly language spoken uh, by a person who didn't know that language, but received by the person who did, right? The other public demonstration of tongues is what we experienced this morning tongues and an interpretation of tongues. It's a tongue that is a heavenly language. No one else knows it. We don't, it's not an earthly language that we can decipher or know, but the Holy Spirit speaks to, through uh, somebody um, in, a, in a heavenly language and it has to be interpreted. And so John so happened to have the interpretation and he had the microphone and he shared that interpretation. And so that's what Paul, the Apostle Paul writes about when he's writing about in 1 Corinthians 12, do all speak in tongues? He says, no, because he's talking about the public gift where we all come together and it would be, it, we wouldn't need all of that, right? We wouldn't need every single person to have a public gift of tongues to give a tongue and interpretation. I talked about that last week. But there's also another breakdown of, of private tongues that God gives us, and that is available to all believers. When you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you have the ability and the potential to speak in a prayer language that you don't understand. It's a heavenly language that the Bible says builds us up in our faith. It's called edification. It builds us up, helps, helps us to walk in faith. It encourages us. He, uh, the Holy Spirit prays for us things that we don't even know what we should pray for ourselves. And the other portion of the private is also to pray for others in situations that they're, they're going through and we don't know anything about. And the Holy Spirit allows us uh, to pray for them in situations of their life and we don't we're unaware of those things. So there's two public and two private prayer languages. The private are available to everybody. The public is not. And so we covered that last week. I encourage you to go back, hopefully, if, if that gave you a little bit of understanding. Um, and what was interesting is we, on Wednesday nights, we gather together, uh, men and women, youth, kids. And as men and women, we gather together. We talk about, in further detail, the questions that are in the YouVersion Bible app. We get into, into the Scripture a bit more, and we break into our groups and, and discuss this. And in, uh, on Wednesday nights, uh, a couple of guys were asking, uh, why, why, why tongues, though? Why, why did God choose this gift? It seems so, I mean, it seems just, it's odd, right? Anybody just think, sit there and think about it? When someone, even when you're praying in tongues, you're like, this is interesting. Anybody ever felt that way before? 
Right? And so some of the guys asked, why tongues? And, and is it really necessary that, that we pray in tongues? Can we be filled with the Holy Spirit and not pray in tongues? We said, yes, you can be filled with the Spirit and not pray in tongues. But, but it's available, and it's, it's, it's actually vital for you as, as you're going to be a witness for Jesus. And so I wanted to break that down just a little bit more as we kind of get into that. Because my response was, as we talked about last week, we exercise authority in the kingdom of God through our words. Agreed? That's why we, we believe in the power of prayer. When we pray, something happens. So we pray the Word of God. We read the Word of God. We, we come into agreement with the Word of God. We allow the Holy Spirit to pray through us the perfect will of God. So, so the authority in the kingdom is released through the mouth, through the Word. And so we believe that that's an important aspect. And tongues is the first physical sign that we have been uh, baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's what we see throughout Scripture. The first initial time when people are filled with the Holy Spirit, as we read through Acts, and we'll get all through that, we'll see that the first physical sign is speaking in another language. And it's representative of a life that is yielded to the Spirit. A life that is empowered by the Spirit, and a life that, is, that listens to the Spirit of God, prompted by the Holy Spirit. So if the Spirit of God, this is really important, if the Spirit of God can have control over your tongue, then he can have control over a lot of places in your life. I was reflecting on this, and James chapter 3 says this, in chapter, and, and many of you know this, James chapter 3, starting in verse 2, it says, For we stumble in many ways, but if anyone does not stumble with what he says, he is a perfect man, also, uh, able also to bridle his whole body. And if you put bits into mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide the, their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a small little rudder wherever they, the will of the pilot directs. So the idea is the control of the tongue brings control over the whole body. And I don't know about you, but the tongue is very hard to control. It's hard to even, maybe you might hold your tongue, maybe even bite your tongue, but what's going on inside your mind wants, your mind wants to come out anyway. Amen. It's very difficult to control. So think about how good of a God we have that he says, I'm going to give you a gift that will help control your tongue. Because I'll start controlling it for you. And as, if, if the Holy Spirit controls our tongues, he can also, in, 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 according to the scripture, can also control our whole bodies. And so that's why we talked about the, the tongue of fire that rested upon the disciples in the upper room. And fire represented purification. And the Holy Spirit and baptism also helps us live a life of purification. Are you following me? So giving your tongue, in a sense, over to the Holy Spirit brings great control over the rest of your body, body surrendering it to the Holy Spirit as well. And just to drive this point home, and then we'll get into the text. All right? right let's look at Proverbs. There's a ton of Proverbs related to the tongue. And I'll just read them quickly, and they're in your notes. If you aren't following along, you can just write them down quickly. Uh, starting in Psalms, actually. Psalm 34, 12 and 13 says, Whoever... Uh, of you lives life and desires to see many good, good days. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Proverbs 10, verse 11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Proverbs 10, 19, sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues. Uh, stay again in chapter 10, verse 21, the lips of the righteous nourish many. Verse 31, from the mouth of the righteous comes the fruit of wisdom, but a perverse tongue will be silenced. 
12, chapter 12, verse 18, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 15, 4, the soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. Proverbs 16, 23 through 24, the heart of the wise, I chose this one specifically because it spoke to me. The hearts of the wise make their mouths prudent and their lips promote instruction. Gracious words are like honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. That's just to understand if we can control our tongues, if we are wise with our words, look how much life it brings. And so the Holy Spirit comes in, and as we yield to Him and yield our, even our tongue to Him, and He begins to speak to, uh, through us in a prayer language, there's power there that is released. The tongue is a powerful thing, Scripture continues to tell us. And as we surrender that to the Holy Spirit, we are allowing the even greater power of the Holy Spirit to move in our lives. Amen? So this is why we offer, this is why we're going to offer on Friday night an encounter night. What did Jackie call it? Uh, Friday night fire. You, that was her term. I like it. We're going to have a Friday night fire night. That's pretty good. We're just going if to, you, if you want to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I know that I gave the opportunity last Sunday, and we can have the same opportunity given this Sunday, but sometimes in this setting, it's not conducive to just wait on the Lord and to be filled. Sometimes people feel the pressure of, hey, your family's like, when are we going to go? You're like, I'm trying to receive from the Lord, but I'm hungry. I mean, there's sometimes it just, it's not conducive. You understand what I'm saying? So we'll give the opportunity, and you can receive right here in the moment, because Jesus is the baptizer, not anybody else. But we want to give an opportunity where you can just come, and you can be in the presence of God. You can say, Lord, I want to, I want to experience this. I want to encounter you. I want you to baptize me, and I want to be empowered by you to witness, and we'll just see what he does, Okay. So that's what, that's what Friday night's going to be, and we encourage you to be a part of that. We're going to start that at 6.30, and God's going to move. I believe God's going to move. So even if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, I encourage you to come and, and get a refilling. Because last time I checked, I leak. And I need, Lord, patch these holes and fill me up. Amen? So I'm going to come, and I'm going to receive what the Lord has as well. So let's get into Scripture this morning. What we're going to read about is what happened immediately after the Holy Spirit was poured out in the upper room. And the disciples of Jesus began to pray in tongues. Right? The Bible tells us there are visitors to Jerusalem, those who have come in from all these different nations for the celebration of Pentecost. And they've come in to celebrate. They've, and they usually, they, it was the best well-traveled traveled feast because the weather was perfect. It's like today. They were traveling on the roads. It's like 70 degrees. It's warm. It's beautiful. And they're like, let's go, let's go to Jerusalem. So they, they make the travel. And as they're coming into, into Jerusalem, they hear this astonishing thing coming from this upper room where they hear all of their different languages proclaiming the, 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 the brilliance and the beauty and the, and the perfection of God. They're praising God. So picking up in verse 12, if you'll turn there with me, chapter 2, verse 12, it says, and this is the hearers, and it says, they all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? But others mockingly said, they're filled with new wine. Verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all dwell, who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, or 9 a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Verse 17. 
And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even your, on your male servants and your female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall turn to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall, be, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, God. Your word, God, reveals to us who you are, your character, your nature, and your attributes, Lord. God, we read your word not to find ourselves in the story, but to find you in the story. God, our hunger is for you. And God, so we turn to our word, we turn to the word of God, God, to understand you more fully. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and enlighten us, God. Come enlighten our hearts and minds to receive all that you have for us as you speak to us, your people. We honor you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We'll, we'll continue on into the text, but I want to pause here for just a moment and kind of break down what we just saw. So after the Holy Spirit's poured out and the followers of Jesus begin to speak in other languages, visitors hear them. They say, we hear it in our own language. And there's some that they're amazed and perplexed. They're like, this is amazing and we don't understand it. Anybody ever been there before? That's a good place to be. The bad place to be is the mocker that's like, man, look at these bunch of drunks. And that's essentially what's happening. That's what they're saying. There's some that are, are like, I'm drawn in by this, and I want to know what's going on. And that there are, there are others who are just like, I don't care, and I'm not interested. What we're going to read in this passage of Scripture is like a master class of evangelism done by, by the Apostle Peter. And right off the bat, we understand something to be true. That there are people who are, when, when you go to share your faith, are going to be like, I want to know more. And that there will be others who reject it wholeheartedly and are just have a mocking heart because they don't, want to, they don't want to receive. But Peter is not discouraged by the mockery, and in fact it pays off because what we're going to see is the mockers become believers. But he sees these people saying, ah, they're just, they're, they're people that are going to write it off, and then there are others who are interested. And Peter stands and says, look... That's not what your, your perception of what's happening is not really what's happening. Let me, let me describe it to you. Peter begins to quote Joel chapter 2 as a reference point uh, to express what they're experiencing on that day. And the reason why he chooses Joel chapter 2 is because these people are, are, are Hebrew people. They're, they're, they're either Jewish people or proselytes who have converted to Judaism. And they have to read the prophets. They have to read the, the, the text. So they would be familiar with what's going on. So he says, let me take something that you're familiar with to help us describe what's happening right now so that you can understand what the Lord is doing. And so he begins to quote Joel chapter 2 as a reference point. And, and he says, God, is, God in Joel chapter 2 promised to pour out his spirit. And what we're encountering right now is the outpouring of God's spirit. But what you'll notice in verse 19 is that when Peter's joding, uh, Peter's joding, Peter's quoting Joel, that there are certain signs and wonders that he quotes here that are supposed to happen during Joel's prophecy, but we don't see that happening in that moment. We don't see uh, fire, vapor, smoke, and the, the, the sun turns dark and the moon turns to blood, right? Because Joel is prophesying specifically about the end times, the tribulation period. 
In the last days, but before Christ comes back the second time, there's going to be this massive outpouring of God's Spirit. And these are going to be the signs that are happening. So we know that those things aren't happening, but what Peter is doing here by quoting Joel chapter 2, he's using Joel as a reference point because God said that he would pour out his Spirit during the end times and it's going to continue to pour out his Spirit until Christ returns. So he's saying, don't be shocked that God's pouring out his Spirit. He said he was going to. And so when it happens, don't, don't, be, don't be confused by it. Just say, okay, God, you said you were going to do it, so this is a taste of what you're doing. Amen. This is an example. This is a, a precursor, or this is a, a, a slight fulfillment of really what you're going to be pouring out in the future. Amen. So he's using it as a reference point. Peter's using the Hebrew Scriptures to give his listeners a point of reference. Essentially saying this is the beginning of God pouring out his Spirit on his children. In other words... Peter's saying, God told us he would pour out his spirit, so we shouldn't be surprised that he pours out his spirit. Amen. We shouldn't be surprised when the spirit of God moves because the Lord said, my spirit's going to move on my people. Hallelujah. Right? Peter isn't saying that what happened in the upper room is a fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, but he's using it again as a reference point to help these people who know, know Joel chapter 2 to understand and comprehend what God is doing in those moments. See, what's so beautiful about this, this example of evangelism that we see in Peter's life is that he takes what the people understand and know and then says, let me give you another perspective on it so that you can understand what God is doing in your midst. And when we go to, to reach people and to tell people about Jesus, if, you, if, if people who are unfamiliar with the Scripture uh, and, and, and the ways of God, and you go to them and say, look, this is what this says and this is what this says, and they're like, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. You might miss them altogether. You might shoot way over their heads and you're expecting, well, I gave them the word so they should have known, right? But there's something about going to where people are and understanding the context that they're in and bringing that into what God is doing in their life. Because the reality is God is always drawing people. He's always drawing people. Whether they're the farthest away from him who are in, in occult practices and witchcraft and all kinds of stuff, God is saying, I still have a plan for you, and I'm calling you to me. And the stuff that you're dabbling with, the reason you're doing that is because you know that there's something beyond this life, but you're chasing the wrong things, and you're going after the wrong things. That's why there are, we're seeing people in witchcraft come to Jesus. We're seeing people come out of the occult practices and New Age, all this stuff. They're coming because there's a hunger there, but they don't know what they're hungering for. Yes. Peter says, let me show you what you're really trying to know. This is, this is the one we're going to tell you about. So Peter continues, and he turns to the, to the heart of the matter. And what Peter does here is so brilliant in the way of evangelism, because the, the question here, that, and no, it doesn't say that they ask a question, but the, the fact that it says they were perplexed means that they were questioning. And Peter begins to answer their question, but then he turns the conversation to Jesus. He doesn't just say, oh, the Holy Spirit poured out on them, and that's what's happening. All right, see ya. He doesn't just answer the question and leave it there. He says, now, let me tell you what you didn't know that you needed to know. And he begins to point to Jesus. And this is what he does. He, he, he tells them, what's happening here is connected to Jesus, and let me tell you who he is. And, and the reality is, in our lives, we have plenty of people who ask questions about our faith and, and our, our, our practice, or why we do what we do, or why we don't do what we do, right? What we don't do. And whatever... Whatever question they might ask us, we as people of Jesus, we need to answer their question and then turn them to Jesus. 
We need to take every opportunity that's been given to us, even if people are asking like, oh, why, do you, why don't you go out to the clubs with us on Friday night? Why don't, why don't you do that? You're like, man, let me tell you, these are the, some of the decisions I've decided. There are certain things I'm just not going to do in my life now because, because of Jesus. Do you know who Jesus is? Let me tell you who Jesus is. Yeah. You begin to take that conversation. Like uh, on your, your, your kid's baseball. Hey, why doesn't, your, why doesn't your son or daughter come to practice on Wednesday nights? Well, because we have church. And church is a priority for us. Let me tell you why church is a priority. Because Jesus is the one who died for my sins. And let me tell you who Jesus is. You begin to, the way you live your life should make people question. And whatever question is brought up to you, begin to answer that and then turn it to Jesus. Because Jesus is really the, the, the answer they need. More than uh, whatever, whatever answer they think they need. Amen? So this is what Peter begins to say as he answers their question and then he turns them to Jesus. Because in verse 22 he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in our midst, as you yourselves know. Peter cuts right to the chase. He doesn't cut any corners. He answers the question and he goes right for the most important thing they should know. That Jesus is the Son of God. He is the one who was crucified, attested to them by God. The word attested means proven. And, and Peter says, this is how Jesus was proven to you. By mighty works, wonders, and signs that were done in your midst. So he's talking to people who either knew about Jesus or heard other people encounter Jesus. And he's saying, what you heard about this man, let me tell you what was really going on. Peter, now empowered by the Holy Spirit, is putting on a clinic for, for us in, in relation to evangelism. He uses references, reference points that the people know. He uses the Word of God in the Old Testament that they know. He uses what they saw in front of their own eyes to explain to them what, what, was, what was actually happening. See, often when we encounter people that don't know Jesus, and God gives an opportunity to minister to them the gospel of Jesus. God is showing himself to them in a lot of ways. Don't ever think that someone is so far gone that God hasn't already been drawing them in. And ask the Holy Spirit, God, give me insight in the ways that you've been drawing this person or calling this person. Maybe they've been having dreams that they don't understand, or maybe they've been having a sense of feeling, or maybe there's been protection when they should have been injured, or, or, or they should have suffered some loss, and, and they somehow didn't happen. And you say, you know what happened in that moment? That was God saying, I'm with you, and I want to draw you into relationship with me. God is drawing people from all aspects and ways of life. And, and we can ask the Holy Spirit, give me insight when I'm ministering to family members or friends or coworkers or classmates or even teachers or whoever that you're around. Because God is drawing them. And if we are sensitive to the Holy Spirit, if we've been empowered and baptized in the Holy Spirit, that is one aspect that the Holy Spirit gives us is words of wisdom and knowledge that will draw people's hearts to Him. Amen. And so Peter, perceiving this, begins to speak it out. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter is inspired by God to help these listeners understand what they've witnessed but didn't understand. In verse 23, it says, This Jesus, he tells them, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. First, Peter tells them that Jesus was being delivered up for crucifixion, and it wasn't an accident, and it wasn't... Uh, uh, because he broke some laws and was a criminal, but because it was God's plan. 
For most of them that were hearing this, it appeared that Jesus was crucified as an act of justice against a criminal, because that's how Romans carried out punishment for those that were non-Roman citizens, that were worthy of death. But Peter tells them, let me change your perspective here. That was God's plan. It wasn't an act of justice against a criminal or an enemy of the state of Rome. It was according to God's plan. And he also says, even though it was God's plan, you still bear the responsibility for his death because you crucified him. In this, in this picture, we see the, uh, the, the idea of God's sovereignty and human responsibility right there in, the, in one moment. In essence, it was God's plan that Jesus would go to the cross, but you offered your hands willingly to make it happen. You participated in it. And the reality is, he could, he could stand here today in, in our midst and say, Jesus was crucified and you crucified him, and he'd be accurate. Amen. Why? Because my sin nailed him to the cross. Amen. And your sin nailed him to the cross. Amen. He died for our sin, which means he had to go to the cross to remove the punishment for our sin. My sin and your sin, along with the whole world's sin, drove Jesus to the cross. So we, we are guilty of his death. Here's another thing that's so wild, just an observation, that, that Peter stands up. And, and the Bible tells us that the number of people that he's speaking to, that it's 3,000 people, maybe even more. 3,000 people come to the Lord after Peter says what he's going to say here. But this man, who is speaking boldly to 3,000 plus people saying, you crucified Jesus was the man 50 days earlier that was cowering because a servant girl says, that weren't you with Jesus? And he's like, no, 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 no. And he, the Bible says he starts cursing himself. No, I wasn't, I wasn't over a servant girl. And now there's 3,000 plus people. And he boldly stands before him and says, this is the God that you could have known. What was the change? It was the empowering of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the upper room that changed a coward into a conqueror. Powerful. Peter continues with his powerful statement in verse 24. He says, God raised him up. This Jesus that you crucified, part of God's plan. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by them. This is, in this moment, Peter actually gives two reasons why Jesus rose from the dead. The first one is this, because God the Father, God the Son, God, or God the Spirit raised him up, right? He says God raised him up. We know that the, the, we, we say things like the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives inside of us, the Holy Spirit. God raised up Jesus. But then he also says Jesus raised himself up because death couldn't hold him. It was not possible for death to hold him down. Why? Because Jesus is life. Do you remember what Jesus said? Describing himself, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus being the very nature of life itself cannot be held down by death because death can't keep him down. So not only did God the Father and the Spirit raise him up, but Jesus being life himself raised from the dead. Dual action in that moment. Powerful. Death can't hold him. It's not possible. 
Then Peter goes on to say, and he begins to talk about King David, which all of these hearers would know as well. Verse 25 says, For David says concerning him, talking about Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he was at the right hand, that I, uh, at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. Uh, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Then he goes, that's him quoting, and then he goes on to say, verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is here with us today. See, Peter's telling him, obviously David's not talking about himself here, because he is dead and his body has seen corruption, in the sense that his body has decayed. So he's not talking about himself. And in verse 30, he says, Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. Can I tell you something? The resurrection of Jesus is vital to the faith of a believer. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. It says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still stuck in your sins. It boggles my mind that there are people who confess to be Christians who say they don't believe in the, resurrect, the physical resurrection of Jesus. If he didn't raise from the dead, then why are we devoting our lives to him? If he didn't raise from the dead, our, our faith, has there's no meaning to it. And we're still stuck in sin because... Because he, there was no payment for our sin. If he didn't raise from the dead, he was just another man, just another teacher, just another person. But the fact that he rose from the dead signifies that he is God. Amen. So it's vital. That's why Peter continues to talk about it. This Jesus, God rose from the death. He loosened the pangs of death and death couldn't hold him anyway. He rose him from the dead. He said he, he did rise from the dead. And so we celebrate. We celebrate his resurrection every Sunday. And we have, we have Resurrection Sunday coming up, Easter, at the last Sunday of, of March. And we're going to celebrate that too. Because Jesus is alive. His tomb is empty. And he is at the right hand of God. Verse 33, Before there, but being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Notice something here that Peter tells us who the Spirit baptizer is. That it's Jesus. Jesus first received the promise from the Father and then he, poured it out, he pours out the promise on his followers. Jesus received it, and then he pours it out. So when you ask for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, just ask Jesus to baptize you. Jesus, baptize me in the Holy Spirit, because he's the one that does it. When you come forward to receive the baptism, it's not the person laying hands on you. It's not the person praying for you. God can move through them, certainly, but Jesus is the one who baptizes. So even if you pray for somebody, somebody comes to you and says, I want to receive the, the, spirit, the spirit baptism. Don't, there's no pressure on you. Because you're not the one baptizing. It's Jesus. You say, Jesus, this is a gift that you promised to us. 
a promise of the Father, and the Word says that you will pour it out on us if we ask. So we ask for it, and we receive it, because Jesus does the baptizing. Verse 34, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until you, I make your enemies your footstool. Then here's the, here's the, the pivotal point for, for, for Peter in his, in his sermon. It says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know, verse 36, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, that Jesus, whom, Jesus this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter gets to the, the main point here. Jesus is Lord and Savior. Jesus is the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for. We crucified him, but he raised from the dead. Then the, then the response of the people is this. This is so powerful. Verse 37 says this. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brother, what shall we do? What do we need to do? This is such a beautiful question. Not everyone that you, that you share your faith with is going to ask the question, okay, what do I do now? What do I need to do? We pray that everyone does that. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, Jesus is the only way to the Father. He's the one to eternal life. He's the only one that can give you a new hope and a new future. He's the only one that can forgive you of your sins and give you a new identity. And in a moment, I'm going to tell you what you need to do about it. But these hearers of it, they ask the most important question, what shall we do? What do we need to do then? And here's Peter's response. Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone who the Lord your God calls to himself. When we present the gospel to people, we can't forget to call them to repentance. So often we see people tell others about Jesus and they tell them about his love and his grace and his mercy and people are ready to receive it. But we don't tell them that they first have to turn from something to turn towards him. And if we don't do that, we're missing it. If we tell people just about the benefits, but don't tell them, hey, you actually have to turn from the way you're living your life so that you can actually begin to follow Jesus then it's a, it's, it's a both-and situation. But following Jesus is not a both-and situation. It's an either-or. Either you follow, follow him or you don't. You can't, you can't have one foot in the world and another foot with Jesus. It just doesn't work that way. It's hard to follow with only one foot. You have to give your whole heart into it. Peter says, they say, what do we need to do? He says, repent, meaning turn. That's what repentance is. Turn your heart, turn your mind, change your way of thinking, change your way of living, and turn to Him. Turn to Jesus. When you turn to Jesus, that means you have to turn from something else. And that something else is your sin, your life, the way you've been living, the way you've been thinking, the way you've been perceiving. A gospel that doesn't call people to repentance isn't the gospel. Can I say that again? A gospel that doesn't call people to repentance isn't the gospel. It's not the good news. It's just a Band-Aid. We treat Jesus like a Band-Aid. You're having a bad day. Hey, Jesus loves you. Oh, okay. What does that do for somebody? Okay, they might know of his love, but they don't understand what he came to do. He came not just to sell them, make somebody feel good. He came to bring dead people to life. So there has to be a call to repentance. I know that's not popular these days. That's not, oh, that's not cool. To tell people, hey, the way you're living your life isn't going to cut it. 
We have to change and turn to Him. Telling people about the benefits of knowing Jesus without telling them they have to turn from their sin is a false gospel. So Peter tells them, this is what you have to do. First thing is, repent, turn. And in verse 40, it's Peter telling them the truth of what it means to, to forsake your life and follow Jesus. He says, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What a powerful demonstration of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that empower people to be witnesses for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There so many times we get hung up on, uh, on the, what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is and what, what we, are, we, are we sure we want it and am I going to have to speak in tongues or are we going to have to do these things? And we neglect to continue reading the story that says, when these things happened, there was a boldness that came upon people and they witnessed of the good news of Jesus and lives were changed in that moment. Yeah. See, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not so much about us. It's about others. He empowers us to be a witness, to tell others if we make the baptism about us, and what am I going to experience, and what am I going to do, and what is it going to do to me, and how am I going to look, and what is... Man, take your eyes off of self. Come on. We're getting it all twisted around. Now, Jesus is a personal God. He loves you. He's a Savior, and the Holy Spirit is a per personally going to fill you and is going to move powerfully in your life. But the attention shouldn't be on you. It should be on Him. The Holy Spirit, His power is available to all believers, everyone who has said yes to Jesus. Said, I want to follow Jesus. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to surrender my life. See, it's a mistake of the modern church age to tell people, all you have to do is say a prayer and then you're good. No, this is going to cost you your life. But the benefits are far outweigh whatever this life and the world could ever offer us. You know, the, the receiving Jesus is a free gift. But to continue to walk with him, certain things have got to die. And maybe that's not a popular way to present the gospel, but it's the truth. Amen. And what I've given up is in no way a comparison to what I've gained in the kingdom of God. Yeah. To know my creator, to know my purpose, to know my identity, to know the power of the Holy Spirit, to know that I am free from sin, to know that I've been made righteous and holy before a, a holy God, to know that I, he knows my name and it's written down in the Lamb's book of life, to know that I have a future and a purpose and a hope beyond this life is far greater than anything that I could ever entertain in this life. And the power of the Holy Spirit is here for us today. And he wants to fill you and empower you and strengthen you and equip you and edify you, build you up so that you can run this way, race with endurance, so that you can, you can do the things God has called you to do. The Bible tells us that God, as He saves us, has prepared good works for us to do in advance, not as a way to earn our salvation, but to demonstrate that we belong to Him. Amen. And so many of us are getting tangled up and not being able to run the race because we're so ensnared with the stuff of this life, so consumed with our worries and concerns and what do I have and what I don't have. So wrapped up, our time is so consumed with so many things. We're running around like, like, a, like a rat in a maze. God's saying, get out of the maze. 
Be filled with my spirit and begin to do the works that I've called you to do. I want you to write some things down. I, I did make notes for us. I want you to write a couple things down. This is what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. First one is this, it emboldens us to be a witness. This is what we see in the life of Peter. He went from cowering because of a servant girl to boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus amongst 3,000 people. The Holy Spirit gives us the words to speak. See, so often when we get in front of people, we think, I don't know enough of the Bible. What if they ask me things I I don't know? Well, we get so intimidated. We we have a fear of man instead of a fear of God. What are they going to say about me? What are they going to think about me? What if I fumble over my words? Well, be be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he'll come and get you. think Peter wrote that sermon before he gave it? No. I don't even do that. I mean, (laughs) maybe next Sunday I'll try it out. I don't know. No, no, it's just right off, you know. No, but the Holy Spirit gave Peter in that moment the words to speak that would cut them to the heart. It was the Holy, it wasn't Peter. We know Peter. Peter loses his temper and cuts ears off. He stands up and makes decisions. He just does what he just, I, I think this is what we should do. But after the baptism of the Holy Spirit, he has this boldness to witness. And then he has these words that cut to the heart. That comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. Number three, the Holy Spirit gives us insight into who we're ministering to. Peter just didn't randomly start pulling things out of the air. He just didn't say like, hey, well, let me tell you a story, and it didn't relate to them. No, the Holy Spirit gave them them exact words to speak, and he still does that today. He still, when you begin to say, Lord, I want to be a witness for you. God, I want to share my faith. God, wherever I go, help me. And you begin to walk around saying, Lord, what do you have for the person next to me? God, what is it you want to say to the cashier before I check out? God, what, is it, what do you want to say to my coworker? What do you want to say to my friend? God, what do you want to say to my family? He'll speak to you. And then you can say what, he, what you hear. Now, understanding and how to decipher that comes with maturity and growth. But it can develop in your life. And ask, just do it in a, in a small setting. With your spouse, even. Say, God, what would you want to say? As a way of saying, hey, if I get it wrong, I'm just trying to hear the voice of God. You're not going to probably, you're not going to, you know, kick me out of the house if I say, like, I think the Lord says, change your hair color. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> probably not going to say that anyway. He don't care. But, but the Holy Spirit gives us insight into the people that we're ministering to. Be- why? Because he loves them. Because he longs to find his children. I heard the story. It was from Pastor uh, Sean Nepstead. In the, uh, he pastors a, a large church in the Bay Area. He was telling a story with a pastor's conference that we went to. And I was listening to the recording yesterday, and he talks about how God desires for us as his workers to go and find his children. And he told a story about how he's got four girls. And they were going on a ride, and they were too, some of the girls didn't want to go, and the littlest one was too little to go on the ride, so they left their daughters with someone else to watch them. And he was in the line waiting, and he just turned back and said, Hey, how are the girls? I said, well, these three are fine, but you've got the youngest one. He says, no, I don't. Why would I ask if, how they are if I have them? I said, well, she's with you, right? No, she's not with us. He said, for 30 minutes, they searched the park. He couldn't find his little girl. He ran to the front of the entrance because there was one way in and one way out. He's screaming, shut the park down! Shut it down! And even as I listened to those words, I heard the panic in my own heart. 
God, what if that was my baby? What if I lost my child? Come on, parents, you know what I'm saying. What if I can't find my baby? And he begins to cry out, and he's telling, he's yelling at people. I can't find my daughter. He said what shocked him the most is that people watched him, but never got out of line. He said, I'm comfortable where I'm at. I don't want to lose my place. A little over 30 minutes later, around the corner, comes a worker holding his baby. He runs to her. She's crying. He's crying. I'm sorry, baby. I'm sorry. He's thanking the worker. Thank you for finding my baby. Thank you for finding my baby. And in that moment, the Lord spoke to him and said, that's how I feel about my lost children. That's how I feel. And the church... We are the workers sent out to find the babies, to find the lost kids, even the, one, even the jacked up ones, even the messed up ones, even the ones who chose to run away. God's still saying, where's my babies? Where's my children? I called you. I've equipped you. I've empowered you. I want to fill you with the Holy Spirit so that you can be a witness, so that you can go find the lost and bring them home. God forbid that we would be those that are standing in line say, I'm comfortable, I don't want to lose my spot. But we would say, where are they at? What do we need to do? The Holy Spirit gives us insight on how to minister to people because God loves them and he wants them to know the truth. He wants them to know him. Number four, the Holy Spirit draws the hearts of those who are ready to listen. Just like those in the crowd, they heard the voices and they said, what, what is this? So they were astonished and perplexed. The Holy Spirit draws people. There are people who don't, they're hungry and thirsty for the truth. They just don't know where to go. Why? Because there's so many people who know the truth who keep their mouths shut. There might be people all around you. They're like, man, I'm struggling. I wish I knew what to do. I wish I knew that there was something better than this life. I wish that I'm trying, I'm trying all kinds of stuff. I'm, I've got crystals that I'm over here rubbing and talking to. and that I'm not, what, what am I doing? And you're there in line. I don't want to lose my spot. Come on, church. That's not an indictment against you. That's, a, that's an encouragement to say, you've got a gift. You've got the word of God. You know the truth. Let's speak it out. And if you, if you feel like, I don't have the boldness. If you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, yes, you do. And if you haven't encountered that yet, ask for it. So that you can be, in, uh, you can be empowered to do it. Number five, almost done. The Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin. It was the word that cut to the heart. The Holy Spirit is the one who cut to the heart that caused them to say, what do we need to do? What are we supposed to do now? We missed the Messiah. We missed our Savior. What, do we, what can we do now? The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts of sin, saying this is what you need to do. You need to repent. You need to be saved. Number five, number six, sorry, number six, the Holy Spirit helps us lead others to Jesus. The Holy Spirit's drawn hearts. He's just saying, I want to partner with you. Share the word, and I'll do the work. Share the word, and I'll do the work. Amen? Thanks for listening to this message. To hear more messages like this one, be sure to subscribe. 
to our podcast channel where you'll hear past episodes. If you like what you hear, be sure to rate it and share it with friends. It'll help us out a lot. If you're interested in supporting the ministry of Central Valley Church, go to cbcmadera.com and click on the giving link. We love you. God bless.